start the recording. Okay, so today, uh, welcome back once again. Congratulations on finishing your first assignment. Hopefully you finished your first assignment and got that submitted. So that's one down, two more to go. Uh, the next one actually will be coming out. I'll be giving you some details about it on Friday. So you'll have um, quite a bit of time. You have actually until March 2 to do that, but I wanted to give it to you early so you can think about uh, what topic you want to do because you actually have a little bit of a chance in the second assignment. It'll be an essay, but you'll be able to, within the selected sort of range, select a topic that's of more interest to you. Okay, so details on assignment two come on Friday. Um, just one note to mention about assignment one. Uh, your class reps who are, um, I don't see a couple of them here, but Ikra, Kenneth here, and uh, BJ have very kindly volunteered their time they aren't really, I know I've mentioned this before, but just to reiterate, they aren't the TAs in the course. Your TAs for this course, you actually have five of them. They will mark your assignments, but you probably will not actually ever see them face to face because they're just sort of marker graders. Um, but your class reps aren't your TAs, and they're also, while they're there to speak with and form, you know, helpful study groups with, they're not there to give you answers as well. So please don't um, expect that the, the uh, class reps have any better of a grasp of material than you do. They're just students struggling along in the course as well. So um, they're not an authority figure. Please don't uh, expect that you can go to them for answers. They can talk to you and talk about their experience in the course, but that's about it. Just wanted to make that point. All right. Okay, so today, even though you're about to see that our list of topics will be quite long, it's deceptively long, it'll be more of a, of a shorter class, and we're going to end up the class with watching a video, which again is similar to the length of the Newton video, it's 27 minutes, so I will give you the uh, option to go if you have to go and get somewhere quickly, you can go. But uh, I would suggest that you stay and take a look at the video, which is called The, color, the Chemistry of Color. Because it's a nice summary as well. It takes everything that we've talked about for the past two lectures and what we'll talk about this lecture and puts it in a nice compact uh, summary for you. So today, uh, last time we talked about pigments and we had the lecture on how we classify pigments and also the different types of properties that we use to characterize a pigment and to describe a pigment. So we're going to go over a quick review about pigments and then move on to applying some of this knowledge uh, with a very short five minute or so, three to five minute video about why leaves change color in fall. And that has to do with one of the pigments that I'd mentioned before, which is also a porphyrin. Uh, you'll see which one in a moment, because we'll talk about that in a second. Um, and then I'm going to discuss, it's going to be again another chemistry lecture. 
I'll be discussing inorganic versus organic molecules. Organic means life or living of living things. Inorganic is something that is non-living. It never was living. It doesn't mean that it's synthetic. That's an important point to remember. Something that's inorganic could be a natural material like a rock or sand. It just has never been a living thing. So that's an important distinction to make. And when you're talking about molecules, you can tell which are inorganic and which are organic by looking at the chemical structure and the composition of the molecule. So we'll learn how roughly, it's a lot more complex than this, but we'll learn roughly how to distinguish between organic and inorganic compounds. And we'll kind of get into uh, a, a, an interesting sort of side note that's not actually a side note at all. It's probably one of the most important things for this course. Although this lecture will be talking about the history of it a lot more. Uh, all the color dyes we enjoy today and that we have and sort of the industrial chemistry industry was spawned in early industrial times um, almost completely out of uh, Germany. A number of companies uh, sprung up in Germany and there are a lot of interesting sort of developments that we'll go over how they're related to color science, and then associated discoveries that came out of all of that due to the experimentations they were doing at the chemical factories. So a number of things that might surprise you came out of that. One of them being, you know, aside from textile dyes and, and paints and pigments, we have chemotherapy as an offshoot kind of science, as an offshoot technique that came from experimentation and these industrial chemical facilities. And we also have a more sort of a darker natured um, thing that came out of this, which was chemical warfare in World War I, the use of poisonous gases in trench warfare. And this again sort of came out of all of the experimentations that were being done in the industrial chemistry factories trying to produce better dyes. And then finally, we'll have our video, which is the chemistry of color. But first, since we're going to talk about organic and inorganic molecules, when you think about organic molecules, uh, an example of a lot of organic things are fuels, car fuels and rocket fuels, hydrocarbons. And um, OK, I'll come back to this in one second. But what I was leading to was uh, just a development that was in the news yesterday, actually, which was the first launch of the SpaceX rocket. Now that I've shown you, I've flashed the midterm slide, though. I'm not going to keep you in suspense. Before we talk about this, let me go back to about the midterm. The midterm is on February 28th. It's a Wednesday. It's here in this room in class. It's from 8.30 to 11.30. The actual midterm should take you less than two hours, but you'll have that time period. Well, two-hour time period, and if you really need to go over, um, you do have the option. So the midterm is going to be all multiple choice questions. Um, I'll tell you the number later on, but it will be enough to fill sort of like a two-hour, one-and-a-half-hour period of multiple choice questions. And I'm cutting off the material for the midterm since we've already covered quite a bit. 
I'm cutting things off here. As of this lecture, towards up to the end of this lecture, you'll be responsible for all of the material, um, lectures 1 to 10, on the midterm. So you can consider this lecture the end of the material that you'll have to study for the midterm. When we do the final exam, it will be cumulative. However, I will be concentrating more on the latter part of the course. So everything that we've done mainly since the midterm, although you might see a couple of questions like, what is light? You know, basic core concepts that you already will have been familiar with. Okay, so you're responsible now from everything, lectures 1 to 10 towards the end of this lecture. That's all fair testing material. We will do a review before we have the midterm, and I'll also be posting on Moodle a list of topics with a list of suggested questions, not so much multiple choice questions, but just basic concept questions for you to test your knowledge so that you can have a, an idea that you have a good grasp on things. So I'll make an announcement later on about that, and you'll get an email announcement when that review is posted on Moodle. Any questions about that? Okay, so then uh, let's uh, move on. Um, I did just want to show this because, granted, it's not directly related to understanding color, although you could think of rocket fuel as a hydrocarbon that burns with a black body spectrum. Uh, it glows, it gives you this nice sort of orangey, yellow glow, but uh, it's an interesting time to be alive right now because the SpaceX, which is private industry, it's a um, space exploration company started by Elon Musk, uh, launched, you may have seen the launch yesterday, probably it was around 6 p.m., 3 p.m. California time, um, and this, what we might be witnessing here, not to jump the gun, but this might be the birth of a new commercial industry, you might be seeing or have seen as of yesterday the equivalent of the first airplane flight. This is the maybe the first of many um, successful launches that will go toward the commercialization of space travel. And this is Elon Musk's whole vision. He also talks about sending people to Mars, sending a manned one-way mission to Mars. The SpaceX rocket here, the Falcon Heavy rocket, it's three Falcon rockets strapped together to give you sort of like 27, the equivalent of 27 engines and this massive ability to lift payload or whatever it is that the rocket is holding. And I'll just quickly, it's about a minute, so just to show you in case you missed it, it's, it's interesting. But it doesn't want to cooperate. Okay, I don't know why it's taking me to that link.
Okay, doesn't seem to want to show me this video. Sorry about that, for some reason it just doesn't want to uh, cooperate. But you can take a look at the, at the video um, of this launch. It's, just a, it's another rocket launch. I suppose in this day and age, rocket launches aren't exactly news. Um, but this one is because of its ability to carry uh, like three times as much payload as previous rockets before it. So this is a schematic here. This is the Falcon. Um, SpaceX Falcon Heavy rocket. Uh, these are some other rockets. Here you'll notice the Space Shuttle, which is being retired, a Proton rocket, Saturn V rocket, uh, Delta, Delta, Ariane 5 Delta rocket. So some of them were maybe bigger physically, but this one, uh, again, it's the first private company rocket, with the envisioning being that within a couple years, and I believe Musk is already selling tickets, you can get uh, $200,000, gets you a suborbital ride up to space. It's probably like 15 minutes, you go up, you come back down again. It's uh, interesting times. And I'm going to pretend to relate that to color because of the rocket fuel, which has hydrocarbons and burns in a black body spectrum and is orange. <laughs> so, sorry, I had to do a little uh, quick detour there to make you aware of the history that we're witnessing. Okay. So getting back to our real material then, you will have seen this slide several times. We talked last time about molecules, the types of bonds, the combination of bonds, and those energy states that molecules have, three of them, which are electronic, vibrational, and rotational. We also talked about pigments. And today we're going to continue our discussion of pigments and go into the subject of dyes a little bit. So starting this off, let's start off with a couple questions. Uh, I can see some of you already logged in, so please log into iClicker. And we'll do a couple of warm-up review questions. Okay, so a pigment is what? A material that emits light at a certain wavelength, giving a substance a perceived color, a black body, a material that absorbs some wavelengths and reflects others, wavelengths back to our eye to give it a perceived color, or a colorant that is either a paint or a dye. Okay, I'm hoping this should be an easy one to get us started. Okay. So I'm going to close this off now. And the correct answer is unsurprisingly, it's C. 
It's a material that absorbs some wavelengths and reflects others. And it's the reflection, the wavelengths that are reflected to our eye that give the material the perceived color. The first definition sounded a little bit like it, but the key that showed you that it was not the right answer was something, a material that emits light. Well, normal materials of surface color don't typically emit light unless they're glowing objects, so you know that has to be uh, incorrect. So here is a quick review of the slide we had from last time talking about what a pigment is. As we talked about before, it's the absorption of the wavelength which means that only a certain number of them are reflected and get to your eye, which gives us the colors that we see. And pigments are typically uh, very, they're small, they're particles, small particles, which can be mixed in some sort of binding medium to give a substance color. We can use them to be mixed into paints or dyes, and this is how we get them to be coloring agents, uh, which assign or change the color of a substance that we're seeing. So a lot of the pigments we talked about previously were from the beginning of, of time sort of, a lot of them were natural pigments because humans had to work with what they were given. So bugs, um, insects, shells, plants, grinding up organic matter often produced good pigments. They weren't as good as the pigments that we can produce today in terms of synthetic pigments because natural pigments tended to fade faster and often when exposed to light, this is another quality called light fastness, the pigments would fade and lose their color over time. So now we have mainly synthetic inorganic pigments for a number of reasons. They're cheaper to produce. You can get more different color types from them. Uh, and they're easier to produce en masse, so for instance in chemical dyeing factories. So at first, we divided pigments into this many types. How did we first characterize a pigment? Did we divide it into three types, eight types, five types, four, or two types. And this is, I mean, we could divide it into many, many, many different types, but this is the key distinction we're talking about here. Okay, I'll give it a couple more seconds. All right, I'm going to close this off then. For this one, uh, although it's tempting to say three, the answer that we talked about last time was four. And that comes out of the first the distinction between natural and synthetic and then 
another distinction between organic and inorganic. And I'll show you again the slide that we had from last time. Oh, whoops. Okay, I forgot that this one was coming. Um, so I've given away an answer, but that doesn't matter because you're not basically uh, tested on the right answer. But let's answer this question then based on what I've just said. Which is the best answer? Which of the following is not a basic classification of a pigment? Is it natural synthetic, synthetic organic, inorganic complex, natural inorganic, or both A and C? Closing this off. So the best answer, and you know, in the midterm you will see a number of questions like this, choose the best answer. It doesn't mean that maybe not, that it's the only right answer. You could potentially have other right answers, but what is the best, the most fulsome answer? In this case, the best answer is E, A and C. So for instance, we know, so a lot of you said C, which is inorganic complex, that's correct. That is not a classification that we make of pigments. That is absolutely correct. However, when you see these multiple choice things with best answer, choose the one that's uh, sort of most true or has the most number of statements that can be considered true. So that's A and C. So looking at these four pigment types, this is from last time. This is a, just a quick review. We said there are four pigment types. They're divided first into a very basic distinction of natural or synthetic. So something found in nature, uh, like a plant, um, an animal, or animal sort of remains, or synthetic, which are things that are assembled or um, created from artificial substances. Those two classifications can be broken down further into two more classifications, giving us the four types that we identify. So from there we go to organic. We can have a natural organic pigment, a natural inorganic pigment, or a synthetic organic or a synthetic inorganic pigment. Let's take a look at some examples of what we would consider natural, all these different types of pigments. It seems a little bit empty if you just say the names, but when you think about how this all works together, it makes a lot more sense. So when we think of natural organic pigments, those are things in nature, materials in nature that come from living organisms. Uh, 
So these would be your hydrocarbon consisting um, molecules. This is an example here of Tyrian purple, which was that purple that Romans used, as, which was basically ground up mollusk shell from the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, natural inorganics. So natural inorganic sounds like a contradiction, but it's not. Think about a natural substance that was never living. So for instance, a rock. Rocks and minerals, you grind them up, you get natural inorganic pigments. And an example, a good example to remember them, it's, it's from the earth, it's a rock. Um, a lot of the sort of earth tone pigments, like burnt sienna, ochres, these are natural inorganic pigments. Synthetic pigments, we're going to talk about more today. This is alizarin crimson. And this, I believe, is cobalt blue in the inorganic synthetic uh, type. But I'll talk about this in a second. I'll show you another slide. We didn't have this last time. But if you want to sort of have an idea of what the names of all of these things are or where we see them in modern day, natural organic dyes, again, those were the ones we talked about when we talked about ancient culture. So the ancient Romans, the ancient Egyptians, Egyptian blue, all of the dyes that have carried forward with us into antiquity are these natural, from antiquity, natural organic dyes. The Indian yellow one we had seen, which is no longer in use, which is probably thankfully so, because it's a dye that produces yellow, but it comes from urine, but it was popular in, uh, in the ancient world. So for these, we see a number of these different things. Again, the inorganic, again, you see these earth tones, siennas, ochres, uh, and also iron oxides. So that's the rust, the red color that you get uh, when iron sort of rusts. Synthetic, we're going to talk about all of these or most of these today. So I'm not going to just go through each one of them, but we're going to talk about synthetic organic pigments like movine, which is a beautiful, rich purple, and alizarin, which is a common dye with reds, yellows, oranges, and then the phallocyanines are common green and blue dyes. Those are synthetically produced. It took until the early 20th century to actually produce the phallocyanines. All right, so let's go back quickly to refresh our memory here. When we were talking, we talked last time about chromophores. And I think I corrected myself. I said it should have been chromophores. Somebody was looking at it and said that should be chromophores, but I had chromophores, and chromophores is correct. So I apologize for all of the AO confusion, but it's chromophores. I shouldn't have listened to that person. Um, okay, so an example of two chromophores are Halene and thorazine, beta carotene and chlorophyll, guanine and cytosine, hydrogen and sodium, or chlorophyll and psilocybin.
So we're talking about chromophores. So mentally try and recall the definition of chromophores. And if you can come up with that, you should see it makes sense pretty easily. Another couple of seconds. Okay. I'm going to close this off then. And yes, B is, is correct. So when we talk about a chromophore, we're talking about the color-giving part of a molecule. The part of the molecule that is responsible for giving things the color that we see. And an example of two chromophores that we've already talked about were beta carotene, which gives orange colors to carrots and to leaves in the fall, and chlorophyll, which is the green color, the green chromophore in plants, which gives leaves its leafy, bright green. The other ones, again, you know, you'll see uh, on the midterm test, if things look overly strange or scientific names that you're not familiar with. I've probably just thrown them in there just to give you some other choices. But guanine and cytosine are found in DNA. Hydrogen and sodium are elements. Uh, chlorophyll and psilocybin, I don't know, I just threw that in there. But that's the chemical that uh, sort of is the hallucinogenic chemical in magic mushrooms. So it's not that one, although it would show interesting colors. Here is a uh, schematic illustration and also a picture of coloring assigned by the beta carotene pigment, which is a very sort of uh, vibrant orange. And in this particular molecule diagram, remember we talked last time about single bonds, we talked about double bonds, we also talked about triple bonds a little bit, and the different ways that atoms can bond together we had two kinds of bondings. We had covalent and ionic bonding. When we're talking about the single and double and triple bonds, those are the covalent bonds. Molecules sharing, or atoms to atoms sharing electrons. So in this particular diagram, you see the molecular structure. Notice that it's mainly C, carbon, and H, hydrogen. Hydrocarbons, organic. This is something that comes from living matter. And this red area here that you see, that long complicated string of single and double bonds of the hydrocarbon, that is your chromophore. That is the color giving part of the beta carotene pigment right here. And that gives you your orange. So this looks like a lot of information and very confusing. Uh, I do not expect you to memorize this or learn this while you're studying. But I thought I would show it as an example of how some of what you did in assignment one actually happens in nature. So you had question 12 where you drew all these spectral curves. And you're probably sitting there thinking, why am I doing this? Does this actually 
Uh, are they useful things to, to know in nature? And yes, they are. I mean, we talk about spectral curves and drawing the exact type of spectral graph that you did, both for reflectance of different kinds of wavelengths and absorbance, tell us what colors we would see back from the material. So we were just talking about beta carotene. So these type of carotenoids, yellow, orange, red chromophores have, remember that a chromophore is the part of the molecule that gives it its color, and a pigment is something that allows us to see a certain color because it absorbs some wavelengths and reflects others. This is the absorbance spectrum of carotenoids, which are like beta carotene. And you can see kind of this nanometer, if you can read the axis, it goes from 200 to 800 nanometers. And it's absorbing a lot of the 400 nanometer range, which is blue. So obviously it makes sense that you would see largely the peak that is in the op opposite region of the blue spectrum. So it would kind of be yellowy orange. And this is why you see the yellowy orange. But people do use these things. They do use spectral curves to classify materials. And this is from a, a research paper by Ito Wakamatsu and Sarna who, uh, from a Japanese health science institute. So now we have a, I think it's about five, three to five, about five minutes video which is from York Resources on why leaves change color in the fall. Sorry, it's from the National Science Foundation, the NSF, which is a, also gives you a very nice quick review of uh, basic astronomy of why we have seasons. And it's not because of being closer or further away to the sun, it's the tilt of the axis of the planet as you will soon see. Ask kids to draw trees in the summer, and almost all will use the same color crayon, green. Ask them to draw trees in the autumn, and most will fill the page with blazing yellow, burning orange, fiery red. One of the best places to see leaves changing and the fall foliage is in New England when you have this brilliant rainbow of colors in October. That's what our image of seasons is all about. Why do leaves in northern areas change out of their summer green and into autumn colors? Like bright clothes covered by a green coat, those golden yellows and oranges have been there all along. We just see it as green and we can't see the orange color in the leaves because it's masked by the green. Chlorophyll, as you probably know, is the green pigment molecule in plants. In fact, the name comes from the Greek word chloros, meaning green, and the Greek word philon, meaning leaf. In summer, almost all leaves are green, or rather, we see them as green. Those chlorophyll pigments absorb all the colors in the visible rainbow light spectrum except green, which is reflected back into our eyes. In the warmth and light of long summer days, 
plants synthesize chlorophyll continuously. They have to. Chlorophyll is not a stable compound. It breaks down or decomposes at a steady rate in bright sunlight and must be constantly replenished. So what happens when the seasons change? As you know, the Earth orbits the sun. Because of the tilt in the Earth's axis of rotation, that's the imaginary line running between the north and south poles, the top half of the Earth, the northern hemisphere, is angled toward the sun in summer. In winter, it's angled away from the sun. It gets less direct sunlight, which is why the days get shorter and temperatures cool. Less light means less sun energy for photosynthesis. Plant food production shuts down. Chlorophyll is no longer replenished. It decays and drains away. And so the leaves will look orange or red because there's no longer any chlorophyll absorbing that part of the spectrum. So which pigments are now showing their colors? Carotenoids, like carotene and xanthophyll, and flavonoids, like quercetin and anthocyanin. By themselves or in combination, these pigments contribute particular autumn colors. Yellow leaves? That's usually because of carotenoids, the same pigments in, yes, carrots, and pumpkins and sunflowers. Orange leaves? They contain good amounts of both carotenoids and anthocyanin, a pigment also found in apples and grapes. And the bright red leaves? Those are mostly anthocyanin pigments. Actually, most anthocyanins are produced in the fall. In some leaves, like red maples, anthocyanins are produced with plant sugars that are trapped in the leaves. Sunny days promote sugar production in the leaves cool, crisp temperatures prevent the sugar from flowing out of the leaf. The sugar builds up and at high concentrations reacts with the leaf sap to produce anthocyanin. Although genetics determine which pigments a plant makes, the autumn color display will change year to year because of other factors. Plants are very sensitive to their conditions and they'll produce different amount of pigment under different conditions. So the amount of sunlight that they are getting, the temperature, all of these can affect the amount of pigment that's produced. These changing leaf colors are brought to you by the changing seasons and chemistry. Okay, so that is an overview of why the the uh, leaves change color in the fall, and it is a beautiful thing to watch. But now you know the reds and the oranges are carotenoids and anthocyanins. Okay, let's move on. Let's do another review question. So going back to the start of the course when we did sort of more physics type material, we discussed light and color in terms of so many main properties. When we're discussing pigments now, we discuss pigments in terms of this many properties. Think of how we characterized color 
and especially how you worked with it on your assignment, and then think about the properties of light that we were talking about, the numbers that you were remembering basically to do your assignment and to calculate a number of different properties. give you a few more seconds. And I'll stop now. So the answer for this one is 3 and 6. So we discussed light and color uh, just coincidentally, both in terms of, of three properties. We said that color had a hue, a saturation, and a value. And we talked about the three properties of light as being the energy, the wavelength, and the frequency of the light that we're talking about. In the case of pigments, uh, there are an additional three properties to make six properties of pigments that we talk about. Just happens to be the way that works out. And let's take a look at what those properties actually are. Um, but before we do that, <laughs> before I show you and reveal what they are, let's see if you can remember from last time. Um, which of the following is not one of these main six properties we use to discuss pigments? Is it temperature, light, fastness, transparency, specific gravity, or color appearance? So we've got a big jump. Numbers are coming in still. A couple more seconds. Okay. The pigment, one of these is, which is not a main property of, of pigments that we use discussing it. doesn't mean it's not a property of it at all. But what is it that we don't use to discuss? We do not use typically temperature to discuss pigments. B, C, D, and E are all properties of pigments, one of the six properties that we use to discuss it. Uh, notice um, many people said D. And that, conceptually, you think that makes sense. What does gravity have to do with a pigment? But in the case of pigments, specific gravity is defined as how the pigment behaves in water if it floats or is suspended in water or if it sinks. And that's important when you're mixing sort of water-soluble uh, colorants. And you can even see it when you're mixing paint and you're washing off the paint from your paintbrush. Some paints will have the tendency to be sediment pigments. They'll, they'll collect at the bottom of your can or glass or whatever you're, you're using to wash off your paints. So then going back and doing a quick review of what all of these qualities refer to. 
This was the slide we had last time. Here are all of the six properties of pigments. We talked about the color appearance, which is the color that the pigment actually looks like. That will mean the color that it reflects, the light that is being reflected, not the light that's being absorbed. Color appearance, particle size of the pigment itself, which has different effects when you're actually staining um, canvas or clothes. Light fastness is an important one. Light fastness has to do with the fading of a pigment when it's exposed to light. So a lot of those natural organic pigments will have low light fastness. They will fade very quickly when they're exposed to light. So our synthetic pigments make up for a lot of that and you have longer lasting, more durable colors. Uh, tinting strength is the color changing ability, how strong the uh, pigment is. Transparency, that doesn't mean, again, see-through transparency like a sheet of glass. It's not whether you can see through the pigment. What it means is if you can see spots of white or other non-colored areas from the original color through where you tried to, say, dye or color a surface. This is the, the sort of like the white see-through or whatever underlying color see-through it is. And then specific gravity is just the weight in water on a scale of around one. Greater than one, it sinks in water. Less than one, it floats. Uh, opacity is also something It's kind of like similar to uh, transparency, but the opposite. Opacity, again, is, is a pigment's ability to hide the underlying surface, so to hide black and white patterns that may be underneath the pigment. How well can it hide it? That's opacity or hiding strength. So let's talk about organic versus inorganic molecules. We'll go into a little bit of this before the break. But organic versus inorganic molecules, you'll see, have a lot of, of important ramifications, not just in color, but in chemistry in general. So what makes them different? So organic pigments basically come from the molecules which are a result of living things. They're made up largely of hydrocarbons, so hydrogen and carbon atoms put together in specific combinations. Hydrocarbons are also known as organic groups. So if you see the term organic groups, they just mean hydrocarbons, hydrogen and carbon atoms combined. And you will see organic groups and hydrocarbons in a lot of dyes, but a lot of sort of common substances we can think of as organic and containing hydrocarbons are all the fuels we had. So we talked about rocket fuel, but methane, ethane, propane, butane, all of these are organic molecules. You can see the structure consists of hydrogens and carbons um, arranged in sort of tight lattices in a very specific way. Why is it just hydrogen and carbon that we see in all of these organic molecules? 
Well, as you, as you know, carbon is the basis for life. It is the basis for life on this planet, anyway. And why would it be such? Well, if you look at the carbon atom, we recall that you have protons and neutrons in the nucleus, and the blue particles on the outside are the electrons in the different orbital shells. Last time we talked about valence. We talked about the number of outer electrons, the number of shells in its outermost, sort of, the number of electrons in its outermost shell that an atom has. That was called its valence, and that had to do with bonding power. The greater the valence, the greater the number of electrons on the outside that weren't full, the higher the bonding power of the atom to other atoms. So in this case, a carbon atom has four electrons in the outermost shell. If you try and remember back to a couple lectures ago, we said each of these shells have maximum occupancy loads, sort of, for electrons. So the first level, the ground state, can take at most two electrons. The second takes at most eight. The third, um, it, it is stable at eight, but it takes 18, 32, and so on. This particular shell in n equals two, the second level, it only has four electrons. That means the total number, the maximum occupancy is eight, so it wants four more in order to be stable. What does that mean for us in terms of valence? If its valence is four, it can make four bonds, four connections to other atoms. And for this reason, four bonds is kind of, it was a lot. And carbon bonds very well with other atoms, and specifically hydrogen. So carbon is, and when carbon also bonds with hydrogen, it creates an oxygen, it creates these long sort of strings of polymers. But carbon is the basis of life for us. Some people talk about silicon. If you were to f encounter alien life, they say silicon-based life forms. The reason silicon is the theorized element of choice for other sort of alien life is because, again, silicon has that same valence as carbon. Its valence is four. It wants to make four connections. It also makes polymers when it's combined with oxygen. Um, but the difference has to do with when it combines with oxygen, it's in a solid state versus a gaseous state. We won't go into that because that's getting into sort of exobiology. Let's go back and come stick to uh, organic and inorganic molecules. The basic difference between these two is the organics contain these carbon-hydrogen bonds, hydrocarbons. They often also contain other atoms like nitrogen, oxygen, hydrogen, sulfur, and um, what am I talking about here? Oops. Okay, never mind. Uh, sorry, I just lost my train of thought completely. So the examples um, in terms of organic compounds would be fuels, fats, sugars, proteins and nucleic acids. So any element, any atom that is 
in an organic molecule other than carbon or hydrogen is known as a heteroatom. It's just the terminology we use to describe it. And again, the carbon and the hydrogen bonds are known as organic groups. Inorganics, inorganic molecules contain, they can contain carbon and they can sometimes in certain cases have carbon and hydrogen hydrocarbons, but in general they will not usually have the hydrogen with the carbon. They have carbon and sometimes just pure ones. So you can have table salt is an example of an inorganic molecule, sodium chloride. Diamonds, like the blue diamonds and yellow diamonds we talked about in a previous lecture. These are actually just pure carbon. And carbon dioxide gas. Okay, so more if you would like to read more about organic versus inorganic molecules, this is an excellent link. It's a little bit advanced. It's um, an open source online chemistry textbook. So if you do take a look at it and don't understand a lot of it, that's okay. Um, it's a little bit more advanced, more like first year chemistry, but it will give you some nice illustration of hydrocarbons and how those bond together, especially with the Lewis dot diagrams which show the electrons on the outermost uh, shell. So a really important organic molecule is ammonia. So it's NH3, or when it's ionized, when it has a net positive charge, it's NH4. And why am I suddenly talking about ammonia? You're going to encounter ammonia in a moment after the break again in uh, a number of processes, a number of um, associated science processes to color, but also in some of the most common and popular dyes. Ammonia isn't too um, exotic. You can think of it as sort of the nutrient that's produced when microorganisms decay. So if you have bacteria in soil, uh, the decay of the microorganisms gives you ammonia. There's sort of a nitrogen cycle with things getting emitted and sort of coming back into the atmosphere. Uh, ammonia is part of that. But it's an important part of the atmosphere as well because it gives us temperature, vertical stability in, in, the, in the atmosphere. So temperature changes in the atmosphere as you increase height. And ammonia has to do with preserving the stability of the temperature gradient in the atmosphere. I'm talking about atmospheric pneumonia, ammo pneumonia, <laughs> ammonia, because we're going to talk about one process later on that has to do with taking atmospheric ammonia and producing nitrogen and giving us things like fertilizers and explosives. And the discovery of that process, which is the Haber process, was uh, sort of happened in Germany during the time of the proliferation of all these chemical factories and experimentation with color and dyes and pigments. Okay, I think we're going to stop there for now and we'll come back after the break to talk more about the burgeoning chemical industry in Germany. So it's 9.31, how about we come back at 9.50?
So we're back, and we left off talking about ammonia. Um, we did say a number of things. It, it's a plant nutrient. It's used in fertilizer. It's used in explosives. It's used all over the place, and in fact, atmospheric ammonia also serves as, and I didn't mention this before the break, but something called cloud condensation nuclei. So you can think of ammonia as being partially responsible for the reason that there's clouds. Cloud condensation nuclei are the small sort of particles that clouds basically condense around. So ammonia are like seed particles for clouds. We're going to see in a moment the importance of ammonia in our atmosphere and how we use it to synthetically produce uh, a number of things. So just to give you a quick uh, example of all the ways in which ammonia is used, this is a diagram. It has some of the nitrogen cycle in it, but really to remember is Ammonia is really important in terms of agriculture for plant fertilizers, and it's important in terms of livestock. It's also a form of waste. That's where it comes from. It's a form of waste from microorganisms or not so microorganisms. Uh, and it basically is released in a cycle. This gets us now into the basic structure of dyes. It's a bit of a jump from ammonia to dyes, but we're going to see that some of the dyes that we talk about have ammonia. So the basic structure of a dye, first of all, what is it that I mean by a dye? A dye is a colorant or something that changes the perceived color of some sort of a substance. So my coat is black, but if I were to dye the fabric purple, that would be your, your chemical dye. And the formula sort of for a dye, there's two important parts. Dyes consist of two things, mainly number one, a chromophore, which is that color giving part of the molecule. And number two, something called an oxochrome. An oxochrome is a molecule that gives, sort of intensifies the color augments the color and allows this pigment and the color to bind to the material that is being dyed. We'll get into more detailed structure of dyes next lecture and actually your assignment will be on dyeing and um, how different dyes affect certain materials you'll be able to research a certain kind of color or dye that interests you and take a look at the chemical process through from creation and manufacturing to the finished produ product of a color change material. For now, we want to remember these two main parts, the chromophore that gives the color to the dye and the oxochrome that augments the color and binds the color to the fabric. Some examples of chromophores, well, we just talked about beta carotene and carotenoids, but other examples that you'll see typically in a dye formula, you'll see big, huge, long dye molecules. And so a lot of the time, the presence of these substances, so diatomic nitrogen, 
nitrogen, nitrogen oxide, nitrogen dioxide gas, carbon with a double bond with oxygen, and carbon with a double bond with sulfur gives you an idea. Those are chromophores in the dye substance. In terms of oxochromes, we have basically OH, we have O with a carbon single bond, and hydro OH is hydroxyl and a hydroxyl double bond to the carbon. So those are examples of oxochromes. And we'll see this later when we look at dye structures. And when you do your assignment, you'll be talking a little bit about the chromophores in whatever dye you choose and the oxochromes. This is what this has to do. There's also something that you should know about. They're called amines. And amines are essentially ammonia derivatives. An amine is simply, remember we had those organic groups, which are carbon and hydrogen. So carbons and hydrogens put together. So an amine is one of the organic groups, one or more of them, hydrocarbons, mixed basically with a nitrogen atom. You can mix it in different ways. This is what we call an amine, and a number of amines you will see in dyes that we talk about, and probably in the dye that you will research for your project. I'm pointing out one in particular, which is aniline. You don't have to worry about these. These are just other sort of amines, just to show you that the structures vary. But aniline is a very important amine, which is found in a lot of the dyes that we're going to talk about, like alzarin. And uh, aniline is basically this hydrocarbon group with nitrogen and diatomic hydrogen attached to it. Here's an example of anilines in different dyes. Now in a moment we're going to talk about the first synthetic dye which was ever mass produced. And that was the color purple. It was movine, the movine dye. Around the same time that movine was produced in the mid-1800s, the person who produced movine, we're going to talk about him in a moment, uh, set up his own chemical factory, dropped out of school, set up a chemical factory, and became this sort of uh, huge person of, of industry. The chemical factory that he set up had scientists experimenting, and basically a dye called fusine was produced, safranine, and then indigo later on in the late 1800s was also synthesized artificially although it was a naturally occurring pigment with all of this chemical explosion going on, a way to synthesize indigo was found and a Nobel Prize was actually given for that. So just remember that all of these dyes that we see are aniline dyes. They have those hydrocarbons and atoms of nitrogen attached to them in different configurations like this. This is a little bit of a busy slide, but it gives you a quick overview of the rest of the lecture, what we're going to talk about. Lots of really interesting things happened in terms of understanding color uh, in the sort of early 1800s, mid-1800s. So I have a map here of Germany, and I have also a picture of a chemical factory in Germany. 
But what this timeline is showing you is sort of the chain of events that led to the discovery of our sort of synthetic dye industry and the flourishing of the synthetic dye industry and how that was happening. So think of the Industrial Revolution. In the Industrial Revolution, we had uh, sort of turbines and steam to generate energy. We had factories and people producing things in mass quantities. One of the byproducts of a lot of the burning and interactions that went on in the Industrial Revolution was something called coal tar. It's kind of like a sludge that was often produced as a waste product. People were looking at coal tar a lot at this time. They had so much of it, but they wanted to find something that maybe could be useful in coal tar. And it was in 1845 that a scientist named Hoffman was looking into the structure of coal tar and found benzene, which is another molecule which plays another big part in a number of different dyes. Later on, this scientist Hoffman, the chemist, had a student, and the student found Movine in 1856. This progressed to another different sort of group of dyes being found, which are called azo dyes, which we're going to talk about next lecture. Synthetic indigo was produced in 1880. And as a result of looking at all these colors, taking things apart, a scientist, Ehrlich, had the idea of what if we could trace things at the molecular level with colors. What if we could take some molecular sample, a pathogen of a disease, let's say, and dye it a certain color and trace it? Could we actually create some sort of cure for it? If you could target it, dye it, and then create some sort of cure that would destroy the infection. This was the idea that basically found it's like a magic bullet tag something, destroy it. It's a magic bullet of color, basically tagging and destroying. And this is what comes to eventually be our modern therapy, which is chemotherapy, used a lot in cancer, but not just for cancer. So that's quite interesting. That was in 1906, if you think about that. That's, that's pretty staggering. Around the same time, there's a light side and there's a dark side. People were thinking about healing diseases with chemotherapy and getting rid of the ills of humanity. At the same time, the First World War broke out in Europe and obviously chemical warfare happened as a result of all of these experiments in the synthetic dye industry. So in 1914, we had the invention or the discovery uh, uh, of the process to produce chlorine gas, which was a really deadly agent, which is used in trench warfare um, by the Germans in the First World War. And finally, 1926 and beyond, we had those synthetic inorganic molecules that had the green-blue dye colors. Those are called thalocyanin. So this is a lot to take in at once. 
and it may not quite be following when you just see dates and names. So let's take a look at it, how it actually happened, and it may make a little more sense that way. So we had the Industrial Revolution. I mean, some dates you could give it to 1750 to about 1840 or so. And the Industrial Revolution um, really, uh, as I've said, produced this byproduct that was coal tar. Around the same time of the Industrial Revolution, malaria was a common disease that needed to be cured. Uh, coal tar, one of the uses of coal tar, people were wondering if they could make sort of a substance which would help cure malaria, which is quinine. So they were experimenting with coal tar to have an extraction process that would extract quinine, which would treat malaria. So it's kind of interesting, while looking for um, quinine, synthesizing quinine, trying to synthesize it with coal tar, the discoverer of coal tar didn't synthesize quinine, instead he came up with a dye, a beautiful dye, movine, which should have an E in there, but movine was a beautiful purple dye. It was very popular, it got popularized by Queen Victoria, by Empress Eugenie, and so instead of being a doctor who saved the world, um, Perkin, who is the discoverer, just became a chemistry industrial giant and went into production of Movi. So at this time, Germany really led the applied chemistry industry. They had the ability and they had the economic strength to do that. So companies that you think of today in our day and age that we still know as industrial chemistry and pharmaceutical giants like Bayer or BASF, Bayer produces aspirin, these companies had their origins, Bayer specifically in 1863 in this boom time in Germany. So indigo was then synthesized in 1880 and the azo dyes were produced. And then looking at this a little bit more, the color science that we were getting from this, this industrial, early industrial period in early Germany also added to our ability to test substances, to test things for safety. For instance, water. Is it safe to drink? Is it safe to swim in? So a lot of these color indicators that change color due to the presence or the absence of certain chemical elements within the substance they're testing, color indicators like pH indicators came from this period. We will talk about pH reactions. We'll talk about acids and bases. We will talk also about redox reaction, reduction and oxidization reactions um, next time and more in detail in future lectures. But just remember that pH testing, safety sort of testing for color indicators and in substances and treatments of diseases all came out, for instance, chemotherapy, all came out of this rich industrial research period. The targeting pathogens by color, again that was Ehrlich who is a physician in Germany and he had the idea of having this magic bullet that when you would tag the color you'd be able to destroy the pathogen by tagging it and distinguishing it by color and then creating something that's destructive to it. 
and then finally leads to chemical warfare, which ended up being incredibly destructive um, through the use of chlorine gas. So I want to talk about, here's kind of the chain of events. In this chain of events, I want to talk briefly about the discovery of Movi, which was Perkin. And I also wanted to talk about a little bit the chemical warfare aspect of it with chlorine gas, which was Haber, discovered by Haber, who is a German chemist. But Haber also gave us this incredible method that has to do with ammonia and nitrogen and the ability to get nitrogen from atmospheric ammonia and have things like fertilizer. So his work, Haber's work, was both incredibly wonderful in terms of the benefits of having fertilizers. In fact, without that Haber process to create nourishing nutrients that feed our crops, the whole of the world would not be able to be fed. I mean, sort of normal crop yields would feed about 4 billion people. The Haber process allows us to, be, to feed 7 billion people, basically. So he did a wonderful thing, food production. He did something that wasn't so wonderful as well, um, which was the chlorine gas. Let's, let's see how that happened. So before we get quite into that, the first sort of in the series of these chemical events is the discovery of movie. You can see this really, really beautiful, rich purple dye. And that was discovered in 1856 by a student at the time. It was actually Easter break. He was home from Easter break. This is um, William Henry Perkin. And he was actually trying to contribute to the greater good. He was trying to synthesize quinine from um, coal tar to help cure or help uh, combat malaria. Lofty ambitions gave a not so lofty result, which actually ended up being very impactful for humanity in its own right. But in trying to synthesize this quinine, he got moving. He didn't just throw it away. He realized it was important. It was an important dye. He patented it right away. And at 18, he dropped out of school and formed the first of the major German sort of chemical factories. So here's a picture later in life of William Henry Perkin. He's holding his sort of uh, swatch of, of movine. This is a beautiful sort of Victorian bustle dress with a movine color. Queen Victoria sported this movine color and then it became everybody in, in, uh, in Europe wanted it after she wore it. Um, and then with this distinction of his creating movine, shortly after he started his factory, a number of other dyes were produced in quick succession. So fusine. And some of the others on the slide that I showed you before, pinks, magentas, purples, were all produced at this time. And eventually, the highest honor you can receive in industrial chemistry is the Perkin Medal. And that's the Perkin Medal with, with um, William Perkin there. 
basically for achievement in commercialization of a project in industrial chemistry. So the Perkin Medal, it's for innovation in applied chemistry resulting in outstanding commercial development. So moving, when we think about moving, big deal, what is it? It's just a purple, it's just a dye. Yes, it is just the purple and just the dye, but understanding it and understanding its structure kick-started a chain of events that gave us basically the synthetic dye industry that we have today and also a number of pharmaceutical pro products. So it wouldn't have been possible initially without Perkin playing with, experimenting with coal tar, trying to make quinine and failing. Here's some of those messy molecular structures again. This is movine. There are different types of movine. Movine A, movine B, movine B2. You can see all the hydrocarbons in there. But what's interesting is movine is a very, it's a complex structure and its interactions weren't fully understood, or at least for the different types of it. It was discovered in 1856 by Perkin and it took until 1996 with things like movine B to really understand the structure of the molecule and all of its properties. So this is a uh, five or so, three to five minute, I believe, video on the different kinds of colors that were discovered at this time. Nowadays, we have everything from bright blue cars to green cupcakes to pink phone cases, but our lives weren't always so full of rainbows. For millennia, we've mostly had to make do with natural pigments and dyes, which were dug out of the earth or taken from plants. And while white chalk is great for cave painting, it doesn't work so well for multicolored clothes. If you want flashy colors that'll last, but don't want to spend a ton of time or money harvesting them from nature, you must turn to chemistry. And in the last 300 years or so, chemical synthesis has revolutionized the scientific art and fashion worlds. One of the first pigments made in a lab was Prussian blue. It was created in Berlin around 1706 and was famously used to dye the uniforms of the Prussian army. The color was included when Crayola debuted their crayons in 1903 and it still appears in crayon packs today. You just might know it by a different name since it's been called Midnight Blue since 1958. Now the details of the discovery are a little fuzzy, but the story goes a paint maker by the name of Diesbach was trying to cook up a red pigment from some scale insect. But he borrowed some chemicals from a lab mate that happened to be contaminated with iron and got a dark blue color instead. The color of something depends on how that object absorbs and reflects light. A red apple, for instance, looks red to us because it reflects the long wavelengths of red light and absorbs the rest. But a blue shirt is reflecting shorter wavelengths of blue light. Or, because of complementary colors, something can appear blue because it only absorbs the color of light that's opposite on the color wheel in this case orange. White light is a mixture of all colors, so when one gets taken away, you basically perceive what's left, the complementary color. There are different reasons why a pigment might reflect or absorb certain wavelengths. With Prussian blue, it's because of iron and something called charged transfer. The pigment actually has two differently charged iron atoms that will absorb orange light and use that energy to move an electron from one iron atom to the other. And because of complementary colors, it ends up looking blue. Diesbach's mistake was serendipitous because at the time, a lot of blue pigments 
pigments like indigo faded. Or they were super expensive, like ultramarine, which was made by grinding up semi-precious stones shipped from Afghanistan. Prussian blue was cheap and durable, so all of Europe wanted it for clothes, stamps, and in their fine art. It was a smash hit, and not just for its looks. Because Prussian blue can bind metals like cesium or thallium, the pigment has had a second life as a drug to treat people for heavy metal contamination. Another highly sought-after pigment was discovered while trying to make medicine, specifically quinine, a natural drug that was used to treat malaria. 150 years after the invention of Prussian blue, there was still no easy way to make purple. The ancient Romans got purple from Mediterranean snails, but it took a lot of them to make much dye, which meant the color was really expensive. So when an 18-year-old chemistry student in London named William Henry Perkin was tinkering with a molecule from coal tar, a sticky type of distilled coal, and failed to make quinine, he was still excited. Because instead, he stumbled upon a bright purple substance that could permanently dye fabric. He called it movine. Movine is an organic pigment mostly made of carbon, hydrogen, and nitrogen. So it's not purple because of metals, but because of the way electrons are distributed when organic compounds form rings. Carbon rings are only possible when every other carbon is held together with a double bond. That means electrons are constantly moving across all of the bonds in a kind of hexagonal donut cloud. They're pretty easy to excite with yellow light, so that's what gets absorbed. And because purple is the complement to yellow, the pigment looks purple. Now, if you think color discovery is just a thing of the past, think again. In 2009, a grad student at Oregon State University was heating up some manganese oxide and other chemicals to around 1,200 degrees Celsius in hopes of generating a new, super-efficient electronic material. He hadn't made the next silicon, but he did create the first new blue pigment in two centuries. It was a bright blue, and because it was made at such high temperatures, the scientists knew it had to be a pretty stable chemical. Along with oxygen, the pigment was made of just three elements, yttrium, indium, and manganese, so it was named yin-min blue. The key to the color is how the manganese atoms are ordered within the crystal structure. They sit inside little pyramids surrounded by some oxygen. Because of the pyramidal shape, the manganese electrons are repulsed by different amounts by the oxygens, so they have different energy. That means that there's some wiggle room to get excited, so the electrons can absorb a lot of light. Yinmin absorbs red and green light really well, but still reflects blue light, so it's a vibrant blue. It's also non-toxic and reflects heat, which means it doesn't just look pretty, it could be used to paint roofs and keep houses cool. The same team has since reported that if they add zinc and titanium, they can make purples. And if they replace the manganese atoms with copper or iron, they can make greens or oranges with similar properties. This year, Crayola decided to honor Yinmin Blue by giving it a coveted spot in its 24-pack of crayons. But like Prussian Blue, it's going to be renamed first, which makes sense for marketing, but means kids might miss out on some cool chemistry. Thanks for watching this episode of SciShow. If you like these mashups between science, history, and art, check out our video where Michael explains 10 times we sacrifice our health for the sake of fashion. It's quite, uh, it's really interesting to think that uh, new, new pigments and, and new um, colorants are being discovered all the time. And I think that will, you know, that will continue to happen as technology improves or just as serendipitous discoveries happen. So let's talk quickly about this industrial revolution, about what was happening. So I mentioned Bayer, the company Bayer, or Bayer, some pronounce it Bayer, which is the aspirin, it's still the leading aspirin manufacturer of the world, among a number of other things. 
The Bayer Company was founded by two individuals, Friedrich Bayer and Johann Friedrich Westcott, and that was happening in 1863. So remember, Movine was discovered in 1856. The factory was established then. 1858, a bunch of other dyes were discovered. So around the same time, a number of these factories were springing up in a region known as the Wuppertal or Wupper Valley um, in German times. Sorry, German industrial, early industrial times at the, uh, the turn of the century. Among one of the prominent German chemists who sort of was one who rode the wave of this discovery of all these chemical um, properties and different kinds of pigments. He wasn't looking to discover pigments and discover dyes. He was using, uh, doing a lot more sort of different experimental chemistry. So this is Fritz Haber. He was a chemist. He was probably one of the greatest scientists of all times. The bit of a tragic life story. He was born in Prussia, I believe, moved to Germany, and he was actually Jewish, but um, he was forced finally, and when World War II came and the Nazi regime took power, he was forced to sort of flee Europe. But before that, in his time in uh, Germany as a chemist, he was able to uncover the Haber process, which allows us to take that atmospheric um, ammonia, synthesize it into nitrogen for fertilizers, and feed the world. So very noble thing. The other thing he developed was chlorine gas. So for that reason, he volunteered his efforts, uh, his chemical research abilities for World War I when the war broke out. And along with about 1993 other intellectuals at the time who firmly believed that it was an important cause, World War I, the Germans were in the right, um, you know, whoever the victor is ultimately is the person who is in the right. But at the time, 93 of these intellectuals got together, many of them Nobel Prize winners in chemistry, and signed a document saying, we support Germany. Um, and for that sort of support, in 1914, his experiments led him to the discovery of chlorine gas, which was one of several different types of gases used to wage chemical warfare in World War I, when they had trench warfare. I have a picture here of his wife, Clara, because just as an interesting sort of side note, Clara was the first woman to get a PhD in chemistry. Uh, unfortunately, she had to stop her work, and the reasons for her death are not known um, as to why she did it, but she committed suicide, and some people theorize that that's because she was a pacifist and she was very upset about her husband um, having invented chlorine gas and the aftermath of all of that. That's, that's one theory. I mean... Nobody knows but Clara, but that's just to give you an idea. So he has an interesting life. Haber is very interesting. I have a video of the Haber process. We won't watch it now. It's slightly over three minutes, but it's, uh, it gives you an overview of the Haber process and why it's important. 
and you can read more about his life. And there's actually a movie that was done, a short movie, um, about his life. If you're interested to know more about that, you can look it up online. But for now, I'll just show uh, a headline. I mean, gas warfare was something that the world had really never seen the likes of before. And you can see the reaction was one of complete shock and catastrophe and sort of abhorrence. I mean, the, the, the headline reads, devilry, thy name is Germany. That's a little harsh, but it was a harsh kind of thing. The reason I'm talking, though, about chemical warfare is that we're talking about colors and understanding colors. And a lot of the gases that were produced in the First World War, um, you can think of them as having constituent colors. So for instance, there were about four main gases used as agents of chemical warfare in the First World War. Uh, tear gas, which you know, you'll be familiar with tear gas. Um, it has sort of an orange color. Chlorine gas is sort of a green color. The phosgene and diphosgene are, is a sort of colorless gas. That's why it's showing you the gray. And finally, mustard gas has a yellow color. And it smells kind of, hopefully you will never smell mustard gas, <laughs> but apparently it smells like, uh, like garlic. Um, so each of them have associated colors and smells. Certainly, if you have chemical warfare agents that have a certain color, like orange, green, or yellow, it's a little bit easier to distinguish what's going on. You'd at least know sort of what agent you were hit with, at least, to some degree. But this is kind of an interesting side note on the chemistry of color used in a very destructive way in World War I. To go on briefly with important chemical classification of dyes, today we're not going to go into the chemical makeup of all of these. I'm just going to point out a couple of them to you. The first one are the azo dyes. And the azo dyes are 68% of all of the colorants that we have in the world are basically these types of azo dyes. Uh, they used to be in food, but in 2003 in Europe, they banned azo dyes from being used in food products because uh, they have a certain kind of a reaction, produces something called chromatic amines, which have like fish and uh, corpse smells, which is not very pleasant. That's not the reason why they were forbidden, though. They were basically prohibited because there is a possibility of these amines breaking down and being mutagenic, possibly causing things like cancer or cancer in some cells. So no azo dyes in foods, but azo dyes are still used widely in industry. There's another sort of dye called an anthraquinone dye, and another kind called the thalocyanine dye, which are those greens and blues and vibrant colors that were established and started to be produced subsequent to 1926. So we're going to talk about these later. Last thing to talk about before we get on to showing the final video is because we talked about chemotherapy and Heinrich, Heinrich Ehrlich, sorry, Fritz Ehrlich, 
we talked about biological and physiological uses of color and of dyeing. So it was Ehrlich's magic bullet idea that gave us the idea of tagging and, and creating targeted destructive um, molecular compounds to wipe out pathogens in the human body. Nowadays, we, with the invention, sort of with the uh, discovery of DNA, we now use a number of dyes that are UV sensitive, so they glow in under UV light, to basically tag DNA to sort of enhance and inhibit small elements of the DNA so that we can actually trace how parts of DNA behave. And the most common agent for dyeing DNA is called ethidium bromide. There's, a, there's about four really common ones that they use in terms of dyeing DNA. And this is extremely useful in genetics and in medicine and understanding uh, how the human body works. So if you want to take a look at all the different, the four different types of dyes for DNA and their effects, this link here is a good source. Okay, so I put this back again in case some people didn't come at the start of class, but for the midterm on February 28th, you are responsible for all the material from lecture one to this current lecture, lecture 10. So what I can re recommend would be reading your notes very, very carefully because my questions will be taken from the notes. Okay. So now then we're going to uh, move on to this video. It's uh, 27 minutes. So if you do have to leave, uh, you, you are welcome to do so. Yes. Sure. The date? It's February 28th. Oh, do you have to know actual dates? Um, no, I, okay, so something like the discovery of Movine is a pretty uh, important one. So 1856, yes, but am I going to ask you? No, I, I will typically not ask you multiple choice questions that say, in what year did blah, blah, blah. So, no. No, no, no dates like that. The dates are more for your reference. It's not needed to be a history test. Okay, okay so we're going to watch. Any other questions? Questions about the midterm? Yeah. Yes. The examples? No. Okay, so in, that's a good question, and uh, both are good questions. In one of the slides today, I had a number of examples, um, and I was talking about chromophores and oxochromes. I put examples of different types. You don't need to memorize those. If something is emphasized specifically, like if we're talking about a specific chromophore, um, then you'd, like beta carotene you talked about, you'd want to know about that. But I'm not going to ask you chemical, f chemical formulas. Um, I may ask you roughly what two elements are combined to form organic groups. I'm not going to ask you numbers and things like that. Okay. Just one quick thing to say about that. I may ask you examples, 
but only if I specifically spend a lot of time talking about them in class, not if they're just like an aside. Okay, so here we go with the chemistry of color. Oh no, okay. Let me uh, log into York. A York resource, so it may require me to log into my York account in order to play. Okay, let us try this again. Try one more thing and uh, we try Chrome. It may work on that. Planet, whether it's seen from the depths of space or the depths of canyons, from the lush green of the tropical jungles to the subtle yellows and oranges of the deserts. We can look at our own development in many ways, music, art, ideas, technology, even color because our use of color has played an intriguing role in advancing civilization. Much of the world we have created for ourselves came from our pursuit of the chemistry of color. Try to imagine a black and white world 
It's nearly impossible to do so. Color is such an essential part of nature. It's there in a steady background of the living green or the blue sky or in the highlights of flowers or of birds. The complex brain which distinguishes humans still depends on the senses. So it's no surprise that that feature of the visible world which gives it variety, namely color, should have entered our souls. We want color and that's why we've brought to the plants in this garden. We describe our emotions in the red of anger and the blues. We want color on our walls. I want it in my clothing. But what is color and how do we get it? And those are molecules. Incredibly large numbers of tiny particles. In the next half hour, we will show you how the search for new colors led to the age of modern chemistry and how color in turn helps us understand the properties of the world of molecules. People and color. The relationship is strong. Today, our world is rich with color. wasn't always that way. In their search for color, tribal people turned to roots and berries, insects and seashells, to the earth itself. Humans have been interested in color from the very beginning. Amazingly, it took until the middle of the 17th century to discover what color was and where it came from. Isaac Newton in the late 1660s demonstrated that white light was composed of a mixture of lights of different colors. He did it with prisms. Prisms break white light into its component colors. But why are there colors? What makes red different than violet? Light travels in waves, and each color has its own wavelength. Let's look at red. Here is the wave. The distance from the tops of these waves is called the wavelength. Now let's look at violet. The wavelength of violet is shorter than that of red. It's because light has different wavelengths that there are different colors. Until the 19th century, the colors of the rainbow weren't available to everyone. The blue indigo and red matter root, dyes used to color these Persian carpets, were derived from agricultural crops grown on plantations in India and Turkey. The supply of these dyes depended in part on the weather.
the process of coloring yarn was not simple, nor was weaving the carpets. Colorful rugs like these were expensive. The same was true of clothing. Colorful fashions and carpets could be enjoyed by the wealthy, by kings and queens. Ordinary people had to settle for much less. Science historian John K. Smith of Lehigh University. Plain people, uh, middle of the road, average people did not wear bright colors. Uh, it was for the rich. But there was something happening in Europe that would change all that. Machines. Mass production of textiles, of cloth and clothing, created fashion-conscious consumers. Mass production of clothing meant boom times for dye makers, but that was about to change too. Coal was the fuel of the new industrial age. It ran the mills, and when distilled, lit the streets of Europe. What was left behind as waste was coal tar. One of the things that you had left over was a goo thick, viscous stuff, which um, had no value. Chemists became interested in coal tar. Cheap and plentiful, it contained hundreds of unknown compounds. What was in this coal tar? Early on, benzene and more complex compounds were found to be in coal tar. Aniline was one of the derivatives. Then in 1856, an 18-year-old chemistry student named William Henry Perkin was in his laboratory at home experimenting with coal tar. Malaria was threatening British colonies and he was trying to synthesize the known treatment quinine. He thought he could make it from coal tar. So young Perkin was going to do a patriotic act and do some good chemistry in the process. Well, his first couple of reactions that he tried yielded nothing but brown gunk. Uh, nothing like quinine. And this is where I think again in all these cases is the key step he just didn't say okay next problem he said gee brown gunk's pretty interesting uh... what's going on here series demonstrator don showalter recreates perkins experiment at eighteen william henry perkin was already a dedicated chemist school was out on easter break but he was in his basement at home trying to make a cure for malaria he thought that if he combined these white crystals of aniline sulfate with these orange crystals of potassium dichromate, that he would make quinine. Now, here's the way he did it. He took some of the aniline sulfate, put it into a flask of water. That ought to be about enough. And then he added some of the potassium dichromate. And he mixed it and then heated it in a warm bath. This is the old hot water bath. And he got a reaction, but it wasn't the reaction he was looking for. Instead of quinine, he got this black precipitate that came out of it. He knew that that wasn't quinine, but instead of 
stopping there, he was curious about this black material and wondered what it would look like. So he filtered. We'll pour it through the filter paper. Look at this black gunk. When Perkin dissolved the gunk in alcohol, he noticed the solution had a deep, rich purple color. He was about to make history. Perkin had made a synthetic dye, and it would be all the rage in Paris. At about the time that he was doing his experiments with his purple dye, which the French called mauve, uh, the fashion people had already decreed that purple was going to be the color. It was the trendy color of the time. What was so special about mauve? As a molecule, this is what it might look like. The structure of the dye allows it to act like a molecular filter. Only certain wavelengths of light can pass through. Because silk or wool have electrical charges, and so does the dye, they stick to one another. Against his teacher's wishes, but with his family's help, Perkin dropped out of school to build his factory. A chemical synthesis like this had never gone into mass production before. The chemicals used in the lab, like aniline, were not easy to find in bulk amounts. But if Perkin could do it, others could too. And they did. Only one country had the right combination, the educational system and engineering skills needed by the new chemical industry, Germany. Industry and academia were working closely with one another. Industry was paying for research and then hiring the new students out of the universities. For chemistry, it was the beginning of industrial research and development. The payoffs were immediate. Now the way to find new dyes was get a large number of guys who are competently trained chemists, get them a laboratory, get them the major reagents, set them down and say, start making things. The path from coal tar to colorful dyes was long. There were many steps to the process. But each step produced new compounds, and the experiments began building on themselves. You can't do a large number of experiments, because every experiment that you do, you have to start from scratch, essentially. But what happens as the Germans developed the dye industry, and they started making thousands of types of dyes, to make these dyes, you had to build up tens of thousands of intermediate compounds, you know, all produced on a, you know, rather reasonable scale. And what you have then is an enormous stable of things that you can use in experiments. And so the combinations, as the base broadens, the combinations just become infinite. From the dye industry stockpiling of new chemicals, whole new industries emerged. Explosives, fertilizers, and pharmaceuticals. From Perkin on, the connection between color and medicine was strong, but now scientists were able to analyze natural compounds and then synthesize them out of other compounds. Chemistry was becoming an applied science. In 1896, Bayer, a German dye company, manufactured aspirin out of coal tar. By World War I, the German chemical industry was dominant, 
and was producing nearly all of the world's chemicals. It was the power of that industry which sustained Germany through the First World War. Even today, the leading manufacturers of chemicals are those same German companies with origins in the dye industry, BASF, Höchst, and Bayer. Now there are paints, plastics, pills, fibers and dyes of all colors, brighter colors, and colors for everyone. The early years of chemistry were exciting ones. Not only new dyes, but flavors, pharmaceuticals, all kinds of useful molecules were readily synthesized, almost falling out of the pots of their makers. And 19th century chemists were not only good at making pretty dyes to enliven the world and to make Germany and England rich, they also turned color into a tool for advancing the science of chemistry itself. Early on, it was noted that colors change. Flowers fade, dyes bleach, or some change color when acid is added. Chemists realized that these color changes could provide information on the very reactions in which they were interested. Color could be a tool to understand the molecular world within. How safe is the water? How much acid is in it? How much chlorine? These are chemistry questions. And when we devise tests to answer those questions, we turn to color. There are particular dyes we use to tell us about specific substances. They are called color indicators. Swimming pool test kits, home pregnancy kits, and diabetes tests all rely on color to show their results. Some common color indicators in the laboratory test for the amount of acid in solutions, as Don Showalter demonstrates. In these three graduated cylinders, I have different dyes, each of them sensitive to different amounts of acid. Now, all of them are water solutions. Now, I'm going to add to them some dry ice, frozen carbon dioxide. And as the dry ice is added, it will dissolve somewhat into the water and increase the acidity. It'll become more acidic. Watch. We'll try the first one, which is thymol blue piece of dry ice. Oh, and you see the bubbling that comes from there. Again, as the dry ice produces the carbon dioxide bubbles, some of them dissolve in the water solution, and look what's happening. Oh, there's the color change. It went from that blue color to the yellow because the acid increased, the acid content, the acidity of the solution. Let's try this one. Now this one contains the dye phenolphthalein. It's a magenta color, isn't it? Very beautiful. I'm going to add some solid carbon dioxide, dry ice, to it. Again, you see the bubbles of carbon dioxide. Some of those bubbles dissolve. And look at that. It's getting lighter and lighter. And as the acidity increases, it becomes colorless. So this one changed from the magenta to the colorless solution. All right, now in this cylinder, there's a mixture of four dyes. Each of them now are sensitive to a different amount of acid. 
Now watch what happens in this one. So we start out with that beautiful purple color. Oh, you see the blue coming in there? Because now a different dye, sensitive to a different amount of acid. There's the green and there's the yellow. And finally, a red color. So you see the four different colors of the dyes, each of them changing because of the change in the acidity of the solution. So not only can we tell what is in a solution that contains an acid, but we can also tell how much acid is in there by the color change. So you can see that these dyes become a very powerful tool in chemistry for analyzing other chemicals. If we could see a phenolphthalein molecule, it might look like this. Again, it is a small molecular filter allowing only magenta to pass through. But phenolphthalein is sensitive to acid. Changes in acidity cause the molecule to change shape, like this. It becomes three-dimensional and its ability to filter light is diminished. There's something else even more intriguing about dyes. At the turn of the century, sicknesses like tuberculosis, syphilis, and the flu were attracting scientific attention. Doctors and biologists searching for cures began using the new dyes to stain their cell samples so they could see them more easily under the microscope. Paul Ehrlich, a young German doctor, noticed one dye which stained only certain cells, leaving others unaffected. He had an amazing insight. What if he could find a dye that would stain only bacteria? And what if he could attach a poison to that dye? Could he kill the microorganisms without poisoning the person? This was the beginning of chemotherapy research. In 1908, Ehrlich was awarded the Nobel Prize. The first disease successfully fought with this technique was syphilis. But his dream of finding the magic bullet that would seek out and destroy all pathogens remains unfulfilled. Biologists and histologists still employ similar procedures. Certain dyes can indicate the differences between cancerous cells and healthy ones. And there are further possibilities on the frontiers of biomedicine. Research in genetics, into DNA itself, uses color for mapping molecular architecture. Professor Jacqueline Barton of Columbia University. Color provides a very sensitive indicator about what's going on, about the chemical reaction that's forming. And also we can use the color much as a stain, as a handle, to watch what's going on. This is a compound Professor Barton uses to stain DNA. The vial on the left contains a solution of a special ruthenium compound. It glows under the ultraviolet light, but not much. The vial on the right contains the same compound and the same amount, but DNA has been added. When the dye molecule combines with the DNA, it has a brighter glow. And the trisphenanthylene complex combined to the DNA. Here's a structure of the DNA. Professor Barton and her colleagues are designing propeller-shaped dye molecules that bind in certain ways to DNA. And when it binds to the DNA, 
what we think happens is that one of the blades of the propeller is, is stacked in between the steps, the rungs of the ladder of DNA. We imagine that it's actually held quite rigidly. And if it's held very rigidly, then when it absorbs light, it will glow for a longer period of time than when it was just free in solution. But the day-glow dye can bind to the surface of the DNA too, like this. And when it does, it has a different glow. They're telling us something about the local DNA structure. And so we can use them as a reporter to tell us about the local variations in that structure and how in which they're binding to that structure of DNA. But how can we use color to tell us about the structure of DNA? The ruthenium compound is excited by a burst of laser light. This dye can bind in only two ways to DNA. It's the surface features of the DNA molecule that determine where it will bind. By measuring the different glows, it is hoped we can gain a more detailed understanding of DNA. So for this experiment, what we're going to do is flash the sample, the ruthenium DNA sample, in a very short instant, and then watch the decay of the glow from the sample, from the ruthenium bound to the DNA complex, as a function of time. And since we're only going to flash for an instant, you may not be able to see it. Let's give it a try and see what we can see. All right. Here's the sample. Ah, there was one flesh. Did you get that? All right, it's going to do it again. Okay, there, there went again. Now let's see whether or not we can see what the computer's seeing in all this. Okay, so now we can see this. Here's the spectrum after short periods of time. And every four billionths of a second, we can take that spectrum and watch the color and use that information to get dynamic information about how the complexes are binding to DNA. This becomes our probe, our way of looking in detail and looking sensitively at the structure of DNA, doing it in ways that we just can't do it with our eyes. The next step is to design new dayglow dyes to bind to different places of DNA and eventually build a color map of the molecule of life. It has been a little over 125 years since William Henry Perkin first synthesized dye and started a whole new chemical industry. Since then, scientists have come to a broader understanding of molecules and their structure, which Perkin could only guess at. But as our knowledge of the molecular world grows, advanced applications, like staining DNA, are sure to follow. These experimental greenhouses have panels with fluorescent dyes, Plants need red or blue light to grow. The dyes on these panels take green light and turn it into red light. This helps the plants grow faster and be healthier. Even more exotic experiments are underway. Dyes might make solar energy more efficient. The dyes in these solar panels direct the sunlight to the edges, which are lined with solar cells. This means fewer cells are needed to generate electricity. Increased crop yields to feed an ever-expanding population. And electricity from the sun. And unraveling the mysteries of life itself. All with the chemistry of color. We have seen the relationship between color and the world of chemistry. Color is not magic. In there are molecules absorbing and reflecting light. And chemistry is the science of those molecules. Because it is a science, common sense, good hard facts 
and logical thinking count. But so does intuition, and so does serendipity, the accidental discovery, a clever mind like that of William Henry Perkin to follow it up. Perkin was prepared for what he did by study with the great German chemist August Wilhelm von Hoffmann. No relation to me. And what Perkin did was not in a vacuum. Within a space of just a few years, several groups of German chemists were competing effectively with him. The German firms organized research teams to take basic knowledge into practical applications. For instance, to make a dye that could surpass natural indigo. The elements of the story, education, a chance discovery, its exploitation, collaboration, and competition, these are the hallmarks of modern chemistry. But most important, chemistry is a quest, a search for understanding of the molecular world around us. It's an exciting search. Think of Perkin when he first made that dye, and then by changing the reagents, if he could get a different color. And you could feel Dr. Barton's excitement as she probed the ways to map out DNA with color. We will learn more about our molecular surroundings as we explore the world of chemistry.